there's a lot of cynicism around, isn't there? And it can easily get into us. It can infect us and it makes us bitter, cold, makes us apathetic, disengaged from people, makes us critical. It's basically a godless posture. It's basically secular view of the world. There is no God, there is no hope. There's no point praying because there's just matter and energy and selfish genes. That's cynicism. Sentimentality, on the other hand, just sees the good. But it's not real good. It's not kind of substantial good. It's just a kind of surface, superficial, saccharine, computer-generated, twinkly fairy dust kind of good. Um, If you've seen the Lego movie, it's Cloud Cuckoo Land. Sentimentality is what indulges our children, it wraps them in cotton wool, it gives them whatever they want, it gives them this diet of comfort and fun and stories that always end happily ever after. And as adults, you know, often it can get into our world too. So it's the, it's the platitudes about the power of love. It's the cliches, it's the speed with which we take an, any old news story and turn it into a simplistic story of goodies and baddies. It's the way that we avoid, if, if, if anything we can avoid, we want to avoid talking about death, our own death, mortality, and hide in sort of superficial conversation. It's the impulse to, to clutch at any sign of human goodness and say, look, you know, actually, we're, we're all good people, really. You know, well, at least 99% of us are good Londoners. And again, it's a godless worldview where we live in denial. Now, John chapter 1, you might think, what, what are we doing? John chapter 1 is what we're supposed to be talking about, isn't it? But I think this is a great, this great Christmas passage is a great antidote, a great cure to both cynicism and sentimentality. So first point, Jesus is the true light coming into the world. We just go to the second side as well. So Jesus is the true light that's coming into the world. So verse 9 It's the centre of our passage and everything else hangs off it. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. This This is brilliant. Straight away it blows away cynicism, doesn't it? Because there is a true light. Not everything is fake. Not everything is darkness. There is a true light. And the light gives light to everyone. Everyone in the world. So the cynic says... All truth is relative, like different cultures have different truths, no one can know. But no, this is the light that gives light to everyone, all over the world. And the light is coming into the world. So the cynic says, nothing ever changes, same old, same old. But this is, this is something new, isn't it? This is something absolutely cataclysmically different is happening here. The light that gives light to everyone in the world is coming into the world. The sun is crashing into the world and nothing's ever going to be the same again. So it destroys cynicism but it also undercuts sentimentality because the true light shows up all our twinkly fairy lights as just being pathetic that they can't cover up the darkness. The world is dark. It was necessary for the true light to come into the world because the world is not light. The world is deeply dark place. And as Christians, we should be able to face up to that more than anyone. That the world is dark, that our hearts are naturally a dark, ugly place. 
And without the light coming in, then we've got no hope, no light. We're just groping around in darkness and death and judgment. We need the light to break in. And he has. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the good news of Christmas. The true light has come into the world. I just want us to spend a minute just soaking in that, that idea of Jesus being the true light. Because I think this is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus, that he is light. If you've ever been potholing, you know that thing where you, have you ever done that? Where you go hat and you kind of go under the ground in caves and stuff. I don't know why anyone does that. It's horrible. You just go sort of dark and wet and cold and you have to go through places that you squeeze and you think you're going to get stuck and die down there. It's just horrible. And then finally, finally you get out into light, you know, dazzling, beautiful light. Jesus is the light. He's the light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. In him there is no darkness at all. Isn't that great? You could search all of God for eternity. You could try and search out. You would never find any kind of corner or bit of God anywhere that is remotely bad or selfish. He's just through and through good, loving, pure, wonderful, completely. He's pure light. And that light has come into the world. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is about the dawn coming. We were just singing about the dawn, weren't we? If, dawn is a great thing, isn't it? Particularly, it's, in November, we don't often get very good dawns, and we just into December. It was, it was quite good this morning. There's something about dawn that just brings kind of life and hope, isn't it? Particularly if you imagine you've been worrying all night. You just had a really bad sleepless night, or you've been up with a child all night who's been ill, as we have. You know, there's something about the, the first rays of dawn that just inject this kind of hope and life. And that's, that's Jesus. He is the one. He is the rising sun. He chases away the darkness. Where there's death and despair and judgment, he brings life and hope and peace. So just, just let that light of Jesus blaze away, burn off all that kind of sentimentality, that kind of feeble, pathetic kind of sugary light. This is true light. We don't need to kind of sugarcoat reality and paper over stuff. We don't need to cling to this kind of Disney myth that there's like this light inside us. There isn't. But there is a true light outside and he's come in. And that's far more, that's far better. And also just let that true light melt away all our cynicism. Because we look around, there is a lot of darkness in the world. Yes, there is a lot of darkness, but there is a true light that's come into the world. The world is not like a closed system. Something has come in from outside. Things do change. There is a God, and he is very, very good and wonderful. And he's come close to us to shine on everyone. Not just on those who lived then. It says, gives light to everyone. So we might think, how can the light that came 2,000 years ago actually shine on us now? Well, that's, that's how we get verse 6 and 8. So just back up a bit to verse 6 and 8. This is the next point. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. What's the point there? 
um, mentioned three times, witness, testify, witness, same word. The true light was witnessed. The true light was witnessed. This is really important because Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not just content to talk in lofty terms about some distant deity. There's something uncomfortably down-to-earth and gritty and historical about Christianity which sets it apart. So some Eastern religions deal in myths where it doesn't really matter whether the, the thing happened or not. It's, it's, it's a philosophy. With Christianity, it really, really matters that this stuff happened. There was a particular moment in the first century AD in a particular Roman province where a particular guy called John pointed at his cousin and he said, that's the one. That's the one we've been waiting for. That's the one who existed before eternity. He's the one you need. And John's Gospel, the whole of John's Gospel, is basically lining up a load of eyewitnesses to give their sort of testimonies, their, their, their court testimonies, to what they have seen and touched and heard of Jesus. So that we now, <coughs> a long time later, would be able to read this and know that this stuff is real and put our trust in it, in him. And I think that's really helpful for understanding what faith is. Faith is hearing witnesses. It's a courtroom kind of thing. Sometimes people say, um, I want scientific proof. This, this Christian thing, I want to know it's 100% true, scientifically, you know, like we have a sort of a test tube or something. It's not like that, is it? The Bible is giving us historical evidence. It's giving us witness testimony to something that actually happened. So it's not a test tube. It's much more like a legal trial where witnesses are called and we listen to them, we weigh them, and then the jury goes away and has to decide whether, beyond all reasonable doubt, this thing happened. And that's what we're called to do, to hear the witness statements and believe, not as a leap in to the dark, not against the evidence, but because we've been convinced beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is, the true light from heaven. That, again, that undercuts cynicism because cynicism says, I can't believe anything. I can't believe any of these kind of religions. It's religion is all just power games and make-believe. And that, you know, that may be true of a lot of religions and philosophies, but this is grounded in history. And there are witnesses, a lot of witnesses, witnesses like John the Baptist, who are willing to be beheaded rather than change their story. It also undercuts sentimentalism because sentimentalism is happy to live in the make-believe world. It's happy to, it doesn't really care whether things are true or not. If it makes me feel better, then I'm not really bothered. I don't know if you've met people who say, I've met one or two people who say, well, this Christianity thing, I'm not really bothered about it, this historical stuff. If it if it's, makes me feel better and it's a nice thing to believe and it makes people nicer, then, you know, what's the harm? And there's this kind of danger that we could be shifted into a kind of fairy tale, sentimentalised Christianity, or a therapeutic, makes me feel better kind of Christianity, which is not about the hard historical evidence of stuff that actually happened. That there was a, there was a flesh and blood man who 
who was born in the normal way, which is quite messy, and then he grew up and people witnessed him and he died in a bloody way on a cross. And then he physically rose from the dead and people witnessed him and he physically ascended and he's physically going to come back. That's our faith. The light came and was witnessed. But then he was ignored. That's, that's the shock of verses 10 and 11. He was ignored. So verse 10, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not <coughs> recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So the maker of the world comes into his own world. That is mind-blowing to begin with. The one who sustains everything and gives us our breath right now, he actually came into his own world. But then, shockingly, his own creatures, the ones he is sustaining, they don't want to know. He comes to his own people, and they don't receive him. Someone's expressed it like this. Imagine someone's coming home from work, uh, maybe a mum or a dad, and they, they get off at um, Southfield's tube, whatever it is, and they're walking home, and um, it's dark, and it's cold, and they're looking forward to being at home with their family, um, and they sort of walk down the road, they get to their door, get to the um, house, they go open the gate in the garden path, you know, fill in the pocket, I haven't got the key with them, it's alright, because people are at home, you know, the lights are on, you can see the kids kind of putting decorations on the tree, uh, knock on the door, someone comes to the door, who is it? It's me. They're not, they're not interested. <laughs> it's me. Uh, no, sorry, not interested. Walks back, walks away from the door. That's what's going on here. That's what happened to Jesus. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. That's what happened to Jesus, and that's what still happens to Jesus. People who are created by Jesus, who are sustained moment by moment by Jesus, just don't want to know. Ignore him. Not interested. Notice this, this isn't about violently rejecting Jesus. This isn't about kind of doing incredibly evil, spectacularly bad things. This is just purely ignoring. It's just purely, sorry, I'm not interested. That is the evil. That is the darkness. This, this, is, this is an indictment of cynicism. That's what cynicism is, really. Just not, just not interested. Simply living as if there's no God. And the scary thing I find is that I can do that. We can all do that. We can live forgetting that we are creatures. That the breath that we're taking right now has been given to us by a creator God. We can, we can do life without Jesus. We can leave him basically standing at the door. We can even do church like that. That's a scary thing. It is possible to do church in such a way that we're really just depending on ourselves and it wouldn't really even matter if the Spirit didn't turn up and there's no point praying because nothing ever happens. That, that kind of cynicism can get into us. It's also an indictment of sentimentalism because it shows us that we're not essentially good people. It's showing us here that we are naturally so twisted that we prefer darkness to light. That the true light comes and we just 
We just don't want it. That's the depth of our evil. We're, we're like the, you know, when you, in the garden when you, you lift up a kind of a rock or a stone and the little bugs kind of scurry away because they don't like the light. That's what we're naturally like. We don't like to be exposed. We don't like the way that the light exposes, so we run away from the light. That's how we naturally are. So we all naturally are. So if we take away that kind of sentimentalised view that we're all lovely and we, we love the light, then, then we're actually much more realistic about stuff like evangelism. When, when we talk to our friends about Jesus or we try and invite someone to a Christmas service and they're not interested, um, we're sad, but we're not kind of thrown by that because you know, that, that's, that's normal. That's how we all naturally are. But the wonderful thing is that it's possible to change from what we naturally are. And that's, that's verses 12 and 13 as we uh, get to the last point. Here. Verse 12 and 13 are fantastic. Yet to all who did believe him, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a husband's, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus, the true light, came into the world that we might be children of God. That was the great goal. To rescue us from hell, but also to make us children of God. That is the greatest blessing of the gospel. The theologian um, J.I. Packer, you may have read his, his wonderful book, Known God, he famously said there, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. I wonder how that hits us. What is, what is your favourite thing about being a Christian? It's a good question to ask each other, isn't it? I think there's lots of answers, aren't there? What, what's your favourite thing about being a Christian? I think for me, one of, the, one of my favourite things is forgiveness. I mean, if you're as much a sinner as me, it's an amazing thing to be completely and utterly forgiven. Um, it's amazing to have that, that hope of a resurrection body when you're feeling a bit kind of weak. That's a wonderful thought. But this... This is even better. This is the best of all, to be a child of God. To be able to call the God of the universe our Father. The perfect Father. This is not a Father who's going to let you down. This is the perfect Father who unfailingly is good, who loves us, who always accepts, who would never turn us away. We have the same access to the Father now if we're Christians, as the Son of God himself. That's what Jesus came to bring us. The Son of God, his access to the Father, we have exactly the same access to the Father. We have the same future as the Son of God has. We have the same security of relationship as the Son of God has. So is the Father ever going to disown his Son? No. Is he going to disown you? No. And I think even more amazingly, the same intensity of love. The intensity of love with which the Father loves his eternal Son. Exactly the same intensity of love he has for you if you receive Christ and you're in him. Isn't that incredible? 
That's what it says. You read John, John 10, John 17, it's there. The cynic says people never change. The cynic says, you know, if you, if you grew up in a particular family, if you have particular genes, if your parents made particular choices, if you've made particular choices in your life, you're going to turn out a particular way. Some people can't be rehabilitated. Some people, I heard someone say this, on L, an expert on LBC yesterday, some people are irredeemable. But this says you can be born again. Not just rehabilitated, born again. Born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So let's not be cynical. That is happening. This is happening in this city and around the world every day. People are being born again. People who are dead are coming alive. People are being totally turned around. People are going from the pit of hell to having God as their father. That is happening. That's why Jesus came. And that is what's happening. And as a child of God, there, there shouldn't be any place for cynicism among us. Cynicism, cynicism is what adults do, isn't it? Little kids don't do cynicism. And that's what, you know, to be a child of God is to be a little child again. It's to be a little child who knows the world is bad and runs to daddy and knows that he loves them. The world is bad and scary, but we come to our father, we say, our father, we need you. So we're not cynical, but we're not sentimental either. We don't believe the lie that everybody is a child of God. That's a sentimental, sort of liberal view. Everyone's a child of God. Or we just assume, well, of course God's my father. No, you know, let's not underestimate that enormous privilege. Let's not kind of underestimate what it costs Jesus to win this for his people. You must be born again. We must receive, we must believe. Not everybody is a child of God. We need to give up on ourselves and trust in the Son, receive Him. See, sentimentalism cheapens what it is to be a child of God. We don't want to do that. We want to look at the cross and see there how much it costs. To see the light, the true light, going into the depths of darkness through hell so that we could come into the light. To see the Son being disowned by His Father so we could become children of God and be received by the Father. That is a massive thing. <coughs> Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he, became, he, he gave the right, the right, the adoption papers, to become children of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can call you Father. We can, we can come into your presence as your beloved children. Thank you for sending your Son, the true light, into our dark world. Thank you for witness testimony to him so that we, can, we now can believe in him. Thank you that this is real. This is not make-believe. And we want to pray that old prayer. We, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to fully receive your Son personally, gladly, as our God, as our Saviour, as our King, as our light in this dark world. We pray this in his name. Amen.